Well, good morning, brothers and sisters. Again, uh, please take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Acts today. Acts chapter 1. And we're going to look at Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. And as you can see by the title, we're going to be looking at the subject of the Great Commission. The Great Commission. This is a, <clears throat> a familiar passage, nevertheless, but it is not the typical passage for which we uh, look at the Great Commission. But nevertheless, it's uh, something that I've taught before, but I, I just feel like it's a, it's a, 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 it will be a profitable, encouraging uh, text for us as we think about the mission uh, of Essa Bible. What is the mission of this church? What is the mission really of every church? But today, for our purposes, we're, we're asking ourselves, what's the mission of this church, of Essa Bible? Well, uh, you may not realize, I'll tell you a little bit about my, something about myself, but I like, uh, I, one of my joys in life is uh, I like building furniture from Ikea. You, anybody else like to do that? Yeah, You know, because I'm not a really big handyman, but I just, it feels good to get the tools out, get the drill, you know, drill, get the screwdriver, or oh, same thing, you know, and get the hammer out, and, you know, just kind of bring it out and just kind of, you know, build this you know, especially this, you know, hopefully multi-box, set, you know, furniture that's, uh, that you bought at Ikea. I love opening it up. I love pulling out the various pieces of wood, the metal, the cardboard, and the bag, that magical bag of all those different screws that comes with. And, and it's just, and it's just uh, fun. I love just putting it all together. And, uh, you know, most, and, and I'm so thankful that I get to kind of live out this passion because my wife has a, has a, uh, likes to buy furniture from Ikea, so it works out. It's a win-win kind of uh, for us. You know, we're just simple, we're just simple folks, you know. <laughs> but anyways, um, but however, when it comes to building the furniture at Ikea, many of you have had the joy of doing that. There's one very important thing uh, that you, you can't build the furniture without, of course, and that's, that's that sheet of paper, right? The instructions, uh, no, there's never words in it, but it's it's all pictures. It's genius how they do it. They just they just it's all drawings and pictures. There's no really instructions for like uh, written instructions. It's just written pictures, and I love those instructions. I need those instructions so that I can follow instructions. Put all those pieces together. Put all those screws, all those fasteners, and bolts, and nails, and whatnot to put that furniture together. And if I don't have those instructions, then I bear the risk of not building the furniture according to the way that Ikea had designed it to be built. If I try to build those instruct- that furniture without those instructions, I often, most likely will get frustrated because I, I'm not that smart as far as I'm not a furniture builder. And, build, and I'll probably end up building something that um, won't be safe for our family to use. And this is just a simple illustration, it's kind of a silly illustration, but it's a little bit about myself you, that you can know. And the same goes, of course, for building almost anything. Buildings, particularly buildings, uh, whether it be a house, a school, or a skyscraper, or even a church building, uh, we need to follow the instructions. There's blueprints, for instance. But when it comes to the subject of building a church, not the building, but the body of Christ, God also has given us instructions, as we know, instructions from this book with which we open every week, because in it we find God's instructions, God's plans, God's will for his church. Each year we like to review God's mission, vision, and values of SF Bible, and this year we are taking a, taking a look at these, uh, these things, these, uh, this mission, vision, values from the perspective of God's great plan, 
that this is God's plan. This is God's plan for the church. It is God's plan for the church, as we looked at last week, that the church of Jesus Christ have as an overarching uh, purpose and, uh, in our lives to love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. That's, that's what God calls us to do as a church. That's, that, that overarches everything. It is out of the love for God, a, an affection for God, a desire for God, to see His glory, that out of that love flows out all else that we do. That we, because of our love for Him, we want to do what He wills for us. And what He wills for us is not only for His glory, but it's also for our good. But this morning, secondly, we will learn, and we're going to take a look as we, by the title, that God's great plan also, out of a love for God, calls his people to fulfill the Great Commission. Specifically, God's great plan calls his people to make disciples, to make disciples of Jesus Christ, to the glory of God. And that is our mission as a, at Essa Bible, to make disciples of Jesus Christ to the glory of God. The Bible teaches us that uh, God calls us to make disciples of Jesus Christ in what is known as the Great Commission. As of course, many of you know that it is taken out of Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 to 20, the Great Commission, where Jesus com- commissions his disciples. He calls them to go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to keep and observe all that I command you. And so, this great commission that Jesus gives his disciples is, is found, in a sense, throughout, reflected throughout the rest of the scriptures, particularly in the early growth of the church. And it's reiterated, and it's not surprising that it's reiterated in our passage today. My prayer is that as the Bible, as we look at Acts chapter 1, verse 6 to 8, would be just reminded of God's plan for us to make disciples. And that we would ask ourselves and evaluate ourselves, how am I and how are we making disciples of Jesus Christ? Well, as an introduction to the book of Acts, the book of Acts records for us the historical events regarding the growth of the early church. The early church uh, technically begins on the day of Pentecost, uh, 50 days, uh, the 50th day, um, <coughs> excuse me. And so, but we here see in chapter 1, that for 40 days, following the resurrection of Jesus Christ, Jesus presented himself to his disciples. And he was, according to chapter 1, verse 3, along throughout that time, speaking the things concerning the kingdom of God. He was teaching them more about the kingdom of God. He had been teaching them about the kingdom of God throughout his life and ministry, and as, uh, after his resurrection, during, before his ascension, he kept teaching them about the kingdom of God. And he was gathering them in Jerusalem to wait for... The, so the thing that he promised them, that was the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And here in chapter 1, verse 68 then, our, our Dr. Luke, our, the author of Acts, records for us the final words of Jesus to his disciples on the cusp of the beginning of the church of Jesus Christ. That's what's going to happen in Acts chapter 2. The church is going to begin the day of Pentecost. But he prepares for them. These are his final words before the beginning of the church. This is what you need to know. This is the, the last and final instructions to the church as they're about to begin. And these are Jesus' words to the church today. Even as we continue his, his work 2,000 years later, still the church of Jesus Christ all around the world 
and here in San Francisco, these are his final instructions for us to follow faithfully so that we might make disciples of Jesus Christ to the glory of God. As an outline, we're going to look at just three qualities today of a disciple-making church. Three qualities of a disciple-making These are three marks, three attributes, three, uh, uh, three characteristics of a church that is going to be faithful in making disciples of Jesus. They encourage us, motivate us, empower us, strengthen us, and spur us to make disciples of Jesus. So let's take a look then at our first uh, quality of a disciple-making church in this passage that we're going to look at, and that is that a disciple-making church has a passion for the kingdom of God. The church has a passion for the kingdom of God. We pick it up in Acts chapter 1, verse 6. This, boy, let me get there myself. All right. So when they had come together, they were asking him, these are the disciples, saying, Lord, is it at this time you're restoring the kingdom of Israel? So they begin, it begins with a question that is recorded here. The disciples asked Jesus. He had been telling them all about this kingdom. Uh, they had been expecting the kingdom all throughout their days, and now they're asking, are you restoring the kingdom now? During those 40 days between Jesus' resurrection and ascension, Jesus had regularly appeared and spoke to the disciples about this kingdom that they were looking for. And on this particular day, when they'd gathered together with Jesus, disciples asked the question that had been on their minds. Really, the text indicates that they were asking this question throughout those 40 days, most likely. It was a, they were asking him. It wasn't just a one-time thing. They, they were asking him this. Lord, are you going to establish the kingdom now? The kingdom to Israel now? Because on their minds and in their hearts, these disciples and almost every faithful Israelite had as a a burning passion to see God's kingdom restored to Israel. It says restored because... They, they think of this kingdom as in a continuation, and it is a continuation of a kingdom that existed back in the time of David and Solomon and, 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 and the kings that came after. A king where Israel was ruled by their own king, where they had to answer to no one else but their king that God had given them. And now, of course, uh, ever since they had been uh, taken into captivity by Babylon and by Assyria, and then subsequently experiencing different uh, rulers over there, and now currently they were under the rule of Rome, they really didn't have a kingdom. They were just a little, a little uh, part of a, of a province of the great Roman Empire. And they were looking for God to restore the kingdom to this. Of course, this kingdom is more than just an earthly kingdom to them, though it is an earthly kingdom. It was, a, it was something that was promised to them by God himself. 2 Samuel 7 is something that comes to our mind of the Davidic covenant that God made with David, how he promised to have, give him a son who's, whom he would establish his throne forever. God would promise a, an earthly kingdom ruled by a descendant of David. Later on in, in the New Testament, in particular Revelation, we would call this, we would think of this as the millennial kingdom. But throughout the prophets, the prophets would talk about this kingdom, talk about this ruler of this kingdom, this Messiah, this Christ, this king. 
and, this, and, the, and how, who this king would be and what his kingdom would be like. This kingdom would be a kingdom of peace, kingdom of justice, kingdom of righteousness. And we can, and uh, this is a kingdom that, even though we're not Israelites, this is a kingdom that should resonate with all of us. If you, uh, if you are interested or involved in politics, you, you kind of, we had this group, you know, you kind of just think about the world. Really, it's a frustrating when you see the world ruled by different governments and even our, our, and you see that though they're established by God as servants of God, yet because of sin, they do not operate as God's kingdom would. They often are lacking justice. Oftentimes, they are not characterized by peace. Oftentimes, righteousness is not what is rewarded, but unrighteousness. These kingdoms of earth really do not satisfy. They do not, they do, they, they, they fulfill a function in our world. They bring order for the most part. But what we would long for what the world longs for, really, is a kingdom of peace and justice and righteousness. And for Israel, they expected that they were looking for a kingdom where <clears throat> their enemies would be no more. When the king would come and rule over their kingdom, and their enemies would be defeated. And they knew that this kingdom would be ushered in by the coming of a Messiah, of a Christ, a king, anointed one. It's why many look to Jesus why they crowded, cried out to him, Hosanna, Hosanna, when he entered into Jerusalem. You know, they were thinking that he was going to be the king, of, the king who would come and establish the kingdom. Of course, they were sorely disappointed when he died on the cross. And their hopes were dashed. But then he rose. Their anticipation was renewed. And he's been teaching them about the kingdom, about the kingdom, about the kingdom. So you, can only, you cannot blame them for, for just asking now, Lord, are you going to restore the kingdom now? Because this seems like the best time because you just rose from the dead. If you can defeat death, there's no one who can oppose you. So that's their question. They were looking forward with great anticipation for Christ's kingdom to reign over the earth. They long for a world where Christ reigns. So is this the time, they ask. They were passionate about the kingdom of God. Jesus' response, however, is not the response they were hoping for. Verse 7, we pick up. He said to them, It is not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. That's a big uh, splash of cold water on their passion. Now, some have read this and then concluded that from Jesus' response that the disciples were wrong to hope for a future kingdom, a future millennial kingdom. But that is not what Jesus is saying. For if they were incorrect about an earthly future kingdom, he would have just told them so. He would have said, no, you're wrong. It's not about a future earth kingdom. The kingdom is in you, as some would like to say. That's not what Jesus is saying. He could have corrected them and said there is no future earthly kingdom. But rather what he says to them is not that they're concerned about when the kingdom comes is not to be their primary concern. When the kingdom comes, the timing of God's kingdom is God's concern. When it returns is God's concern. I remember in the 80s when it was real popular among uh, evangelical Christians to, to kind of look for signs and try to figure out, oh, when Jesus is going to return. 
And uh, there are all sorts of books written. You can always find something and say, oh, Jesus is going to return here. Jesus is going to return here. And whenever anyone tells you that Jesus is going to return here, you better, at this time or that specific date, that's a sure sign that that's a false prophet. And you need to get out of that church and get away from that kind of teaching, okay? Because that leads for sure to destruction. And, but God, tell, Jesus tells his disciples that when is not to be their concern. Rather, from Jesus' words, from the rest of the book of the words, the disciples' concern ought to be not when, but what. What are they to be about? What are they to do to further the kingdom of God? And we see this. Let me show you, walk you through Acts. So we have a couple passages that we can look through. <clears throat> In Acts chapter 8, verse 12, Philip preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. In Acts 19.8, Paul entered the synagogue at Ephesus and spoke to them about the kingdom of God. In Acts 20.25, Paul referred to his ministry to the Ephesians as preaching the kingdom. Acts 28.23, Paul, before leading the Jews of Rome, solemnly testified, leaving, solemnly testified to them about the kingdom of God and tried to persuade them concerning Jesus. In Acts 28, verse 31, for two years in Rome, Paul was preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. So what we find in Acts is that that there was a passion for the kingdom of God, that what Jesus told them about continued to be their message. Wherever they went, they, they told people about the kingdom of God. A passion for the kingdom of God reflects and displays and manifests in a preaching and proclaiming about the kingdom of God. They kept telling others about how the kingdom of God was coming, but most importantly about how one could enter into the kingdom of God. And the way that one can enter into the kingdom of God is through knowing the king. Who is this king? Of course, the king is Jesus Christ. He is the king who came and died for our sins and rose from the grave so that anyone, everyone, through faith in him can have the hope of entering the kingdom of God. So the disciples' passion <coughs> was a correct passion. And it's not a, it's a passion that marked the early, the early church and it, and it manifests in a preaching and proclaiming about the kingdom, about the, the king, Jesus Christ. Jesus' answer would focus his disciples on the task of furthering the kingdom by witnessing of the king so that others might be entered into the kingdom. Disciples' passion for the kingdom was an essential truth for the early church to focus upon them, and that became their mission because they were passionate about it. They told others about it. It's true, whatever you're passionate about, you, you tend to tell people about. You find a great fried chicken place, you tell everybody about fried chicken. You find a good, uh, a good a nice undershirt, a t-shirt, you say, oh, man, this feels so good, it, feels, it just fits me, makes me look real buff. You want to tell everybody about it? You find a great place that fixes tires? Oh, man, you can go to him anytime. You call him up, he'll say, come on over. Well, me, hopefully. You want to tell everybody about that? Tire guy. Because what you're passionate about, you find excitement about, you're going to tell people about. And if we're passionate about the kingdom of God, then we're going to tell others about the kingdom of God. 
We all have various passions, do we not, brothers and sisters? And it's okay to have various passions. We all have them. Some of it is, for some of us, it may be IKEA furniture. Others, it may be sports, fashion. Perhaps it's food or travel. But whatever your passion is, your one primary passion, the church's primary passion, is the kingdom of God. It's a kingdom that is not yet here. It's a kingdom that's going to be reigned by a king. It's a kingdom that is coming. And anyone who is not part of that kingdom will face the wrath of that king. And that's our message. And that's our message. That we, this is our proclamation. Do we have a passion for this kingdom? Do we have a passion for the king? Do we see desire to see the king, Christ, magnified as the Lord of lords and king of kings that he will be displayed as when he returns? Do we desire to see others come to know the name of Jesus Christ by which they might be saved? Are we about the king and his kingdom business? Are we, or are we about ourselves and our own business? Is his kingdom in, in almost first, in the first application of this even, is this. Is his kingdom the passionate prayer of our lives? Remember how Jesus taught his disciples to pray? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. You know, after his name being hallowed, treated holy in all the world, he's teaching us to, to pray that, for, that his kingdom would come. Are we praying, God, may your kingdom come. May others enter your kingdom. May, may you help me to be faithful to further your kingdom. These kind of prayers, are, you know, oftentimes I'm afraid that I myself, and as well as many of you, you probably as well too, are often praying, not thy kingdom come, but my kingdom come. My will be done, Lord. Oh, I want this to happen, that to happen. My own sake. What is reflecting in our prayers Thy kingdom come or my kingdom come. Well, Jesus' words to his disciples here in Acts 1, 6, and 7 encourage us as a church, we're going to be a disciple-making church, that we need to have a passion for the kingdom of God. Okay, that's point number one. A second quality of a disciple-making church we see in the first part of verse 8 then. is That is, a disciple-making church receives power from the Holy Spirit. It's marked by power from the Holy Spirit. Verse 8 in contrast to what they were looking for, they were looking for the kingdom of God, whether you come now, but he says, and but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. The conjunction here indicates that their focus is, is a little off, needs correcting. Disciples' concern is not to be when, but whom? Who? Instead of focusing and Jesus reflects whom or who in this verse. Jesus focuses them on who will empower them to further the kingdom of God. If they want to be about the kingdom of God, they're passionate about the kingdom of God, then they need to anticipate who will empower them to bring about the kingdom of God. In verse 4 to 5, he told them them to wait for the Father's promise of the Holy Spirit. And the mention of the Holy Spirit, and now reiterated here in verse 8, remind the disciples of what the Old Testament prophets had taught about the kingdom of God. You know, all the Old Testament prophets, whether it's Isaiah, Ezekiel, Joel, Zechariah, they, they all prophesied in different ways of, the fort, of an outpouring of the Spirit in the time of the kingdom. 
that the spear would be would would pour out. And this is a magnificent truth because in those days in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit was not just in every in every believer in every uh, people in every person of, of God. It would only, he, the Holy Spirit only would come to dwell within or fill unique individuals at unique times for special tasks. It's like receiving a superpower, you know? That's kind of, it's like, it's not everybody's Superman, only one person is Superman, gets that power. But now, in the, the prophets told that in the kingdom, the Spirit's going to f- be filled in everyone. The arrival of the Spirit came on the day of Pentecost, as we, we, we'll, uh, we would read in Acts chapter 2. And on that day, the disciples in Jerusalem were filled with the Holy Spirit. They experienced the outpouring of the Spirit. But even then, from that day forward, not everyone was experienced the outpouring of the Spirit. Only a few handful of believers, increasing number along the way, but yet not the whole world. According to Joel, the prophet Joel, in the Millennial Kingdom, the outpouring of the Spirit would be upon all mankind. And so what we see that what happens in Pentecost was actually just a, a partial fulfillment of the promise of the coming of the Spirit. That there would still be a time in the future when Christ's kingdom would come on earth that the Spirit would be poured out among all who dwelt on the earth. So Christ's kingdom, his earth, future earthly kingdom was still in the future. But Jesus' words here teaches them that this coming of the Spirit, the, outpour, the, the Spirit upon them, and the, the dwell, indwelling of the Spirit upon disciples would empower them for the work of furthering his kingdom. Jesus tells them, there's a cause and effect here, that they will receive power as a result of the Holy Spirit that they will receive. Throughout the book of Acts, we learn that the, empower, that the primary empowerment of the Holy Spirit would manifest throughout the church. It would be the, sometimes the, it, the Acts, book of Acts is called the Acts of the Apostles, but it's really the Acts of the Holy Spirit, because it's the act of the Holy Spirit in the church that causes the church to grow, and it causes the church to grow as the Spirit fills people, and he primarily causes them to speak, that the Spirit empowers them to speak. God's truths. We see this throughout the book of Acts. Let me walk you through. Acts chapter 2, the, where the church begins, the disciples were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak with tongues, with other tongues, as other languages, as the Spirit was giving them utterance. And what were they uttering? Verse 11, they were speaking of the mighty deeds of God. They were t- proclaiming what God had done. Acts chapter 4, verse 31 And when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. Acts chapter 6, verse 10. Here, but they were unable to cope with the wisdom and spirit with which he was speaking. The spirit, this speaking of Stephen, the spirit had empowered Stephen to speak with such wisdom that his opponents were unable to cope with it, unable to answer him. The early church received the Spirit of God, and spoke. And as Christians, as a church, we all also are indwelt by the Holy Spirit when we receive Jesus Christ, when we believe upon Christ. And we receive the same Spirit. 
The same spirit that dwelt in these men, these men and women in the early church, is the same spirit that dwells within you and me. The spirit is at work in us, in our inner man, and strengthening us to live godly lives and empowering us to speak his truths wherever and to whomever he leads us to. If our passion is to God's kingdom, Christ's kingdom, and our desire is to see Christ's kingdom furthered, then we need to depend upon the power that is provided for us through his Holy Spirit. We must be men and women filled with the Spirit, filled with his word. We must prayerfully seek the Spirit's empowerment and leading so that we might be bold to speak the truths of Christ. The fact that the Scripture often talks about praying for boldness means that for the most majority of us, being human beings, who we are, we tend to be not bold. We tend to be a fearful. You feel it when you're about to share the gospel with someone that's a stranger. You can feel it. There's a, there's a little bit of, of desire to, in, our, in our finiteness to draw back. You know, most likely, it's going to be a message that's going to be rejected unless God is doing a work. And God is doing a work how do, if the, His Spirit is filling me, and his spirit is doing a work in the one who's hearing. So that's why we need to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. Because if we do it on our own, if there's no Holy Spirit at work in the lives of in me who speaks and the one who's going to listen, oh yeah, we're going to be rejected every single time. But it's only because the Spirit is working in us, working in the hearer, that there is this miracle that takes place when we proclaim the message, a dead person, dead in the trespass sins, becomes alive and hears and responds and believes and is saved. That is the great miracle. And that's the great work which God calls us to do. We need to rely on Holy Spirit's power. When you proclaim the gospel, whom do you depend upon to proclaim his truths? Now, I know as a, as a preacher and teacher, it's, uh, especially those of us that are gifted and able to teach, it is easy, often easy to depend upon our own speaking abilities, our, our oratorical skills, our, our profound illustrations, or maybe our beautiful keynote, or our, the beautiful sound that comes out of our AV system when I speak to deliver God's word in a convincing way. And certainly these things are helpful, but we would be mistaken, I am mistaken, if I think that, it's, if I, that these things are what... A, are what further the kingdom of God. They do not make the preaching of God more effective or even less effective. The preaching of the word of God alone, without any of these things, with the power of the Holy Spirit, is sufficient. It doesn't matter who is speaking. It doesn't have to be the pastor. It can be you. It can be you. It can be anyone. Because why? Because you have the Holy Spirit. And if you depend upon the Holy Spirit, you are going to be God's instrument to proclaim the kingdom of God. And you may have the joy of seeing a loved one, a friend, a neighbor also enter the kingdom of God because your faithfulness to the king. As Essa Bible has grown, 
we've added uh, many ministries and structures to the church. In fact, we have so many ministry leaders, nearly 50% of our members are ministry leaders. That means they're responsible over some area of ministry. And I, and I thank God for these things. We, and, but as a mature church that has many programs, many ministries, much structure, the tendency for every church that is in that stage of maturity is that we tend to depend upon these things. We look to them as being the key. Oh, because we have these programs. We got this, this program here, this X program, this Y program, or the Z program. That's, that's what guarantees us to be successful, to be effective. But these are not what make us effective, brothers and sisters. What makes us effective is the power of the Spirit in His people so that we might proclaim the word of God. It's, it's that simple. It was so in 1964 when the church began. This church has grown only because of the power of the Spirit and the people of God who spoke the word of God. And in 2023, the power to make disciples is still the same. The power of the Holy Spirit in the people of God so that we might speak the word of God. Simple as that. And that is what is God's plan for his church. People do not enter the kingdom through the power of programs, through structure, through a particular leader, or any number of leaders, or any, <coughs> any such thing. The power for making disciples, is, it's not in a building, it's not in a person, it's not in ability, not in a technology. It's in the power of the Holy Spirit. And are we depending upon the Holy Spirit? And we do that through prayer, through prayer, in the work that we are called to do in making disciples? Do we depend upon him? It's a great question. Jesus focuses the disciples who are asking when is the kingdom coming, to whom they are to depend upon, the Holy Spirit, for the work that he's calling to do. You're concerned about the kingdom of God? Well, then depend upon the Holy Spirit. But Jesus further focuses them on whom they are to, to look to. In the third point, the third uh, quality of a disciple-making truth of a disciple-making church, and that is, a disciple-making church is marked by a priority to witness of Christ or witness to Christ. Again, the continuation of verse eight of Acts chapter one, the continuation of this cause effect. Uh, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, you will receive power. Awesome. But what, what, why do we receive power for? Well, you receive power, and the result is this. And you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem, in all Judea, and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. You're going to be my witnesses, Jesus says. These final words of Jesus move them to focus on Christ. They're the Holy Spirit, and now Christ is their fo- to be their focus. The empowerment of the Holy Spirit is for the ultimate purpose of his disciples, the church of Jesus Christ, to be witnesses to Christ. Jesus' emphasis, the emphasis here is on the personal promise. He says, you shall be my witnesses. You shall be witnesses of Jesus. They are to be witnesses of Christ. 
Now, a witness is someone, of course, you know, today is someone who testifies to the truth of a matter. We call witnesses to court stand, to, to the court to sit in the, uh, and, and uh, give a testimony about what they know or what they saw, what they observed. And as disciples of Jesus Christ, we are called to testify to what we know, what we have observed, what we have learned. We are to testify, of course, most particularly of Christ, what we know and have observed and learned of Christ. We're to testify of his truth, of his life. We're to testify of his death. We're to testify of his resurrection. And their test- the, the early church's testimony gave witness to the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's what they did. That's what Jesus called them to do. He empowered them to do. In fact, on the day of Pentecost, uh, the early, we see that the early church understood this. For as soon as they were filled with the Spirit, people started hearing the speaking tongues and wondering what they're all about. Peter answered in Acts chapter 2, verse 32. He said this, this he, he started talking to them about Jesus. This Jesus, God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. We all saw him. We all heard him. We all touched him. And what we saw and heard and observed of him, we tell you, we're witnesses of Christ. In Acts chapter 5, 29, 5:29-32, Peter and the apostles experienced a major test to their calling, their mission. Religious leaders had basically forbade them under penalty. They, they could have been kicked out of the synagogue or temple worship, not allowed to worship in the community of Israel. Peter and the apostles answered, though, the, the, char, the, uh, the, uh, the command of the council to for, forbidding them to preach Christ with these words in Acts 5, 29, which are, you can see there. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you put to death by hanging him on a cross. He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. The early church was focused on the priority of being witnesses of Christ. Even at the risk of being excommunicated from the temple, from their synagogues, they were willing to bear the suffering, the shame, to testify of this Jesus who was Savior and Lord. They boldly spoke the truth about people's sins. They boldly spoke the truth about the need for repentance of sins. I've, I don't go church hopping too often. But I, it saddens me when I hear from other people, when they come from other churches, they, they've been looking for a church. And I don't know if this is true. I hope it's not true. But it, it, sadly, I think it is. That when people go to church, almost seldom do they hear about ta- people, the preacher from the pulpit talking about sin anymore. That sin is not mentioned in their pulpits which surprises me, which shocks, it ought to shock us if you go to church and they do not talk about sin. Because if you don't talk about sin, then why do we need a Savior? Why do we need Jesus if we're not sinners that needs God's grace? 
And so we talk about sin. We tell people, yes, uh, you know, God calls me to love you, and I love you. And, but part of that love means telling you that the life you're living is a life of sin. Not because I have said it so, but because God said it so. And I'm telling you this because God doesn't want you to stay living in a life of sin. God wants your good, and he sent his son so you may be set free from a life of sin. And that, yes, that's going to be offensive to a lot of people. It is. But it is the message that we proclaim. It's what Christ, the Holy Spirit empowers us to, to, empowers us to do, to witness of Jesus Christ. This witness, of course, was not just limited in the early church to their own community, to fellow Israelites. (coughs) Excuse me. (coughs) Excuse me. Jesus indicates, Jesus' words indicate that the witness of Christ, by necessity, will always have a view to reaching others even beyond our community, beyond our neighborhood, beyond our city. He told them that they will be witnesses not only in Jerusalem, but then in all Judea and Samaria. Those are the two neighboring uh, um, regions. And the, but then Jesus says, but you will be my witnesses even to the remotest part of the earth, to the farthest corners of the world. They were to be witnesses of Christ. Obviously, the, the early church, among the other early church, Everyone, there were some 3,000 that were added to the early church. They didn't all go out, did they, to the remotest part of the earth? And they didn't. Some, most of the majority stayed in Jerusalem. But the witness of that early church, especially those that were gathered among that 3,000, led, uh, led to other, as they told people who came to Jerusalem perhaps, and some returned to their home cities, other witnesses, and this witness of Christ spread The message of Jesus spread throughout Judea, throughout Samaria, and it spread to cities like Antioch in Syria, which then led to witnesses to Galatia, to Greece, and even to Rome. So for the disciples, they faithfully witnessed to Christ in Jerusalem. They knew that their witness was meant to expand beyond themselves. It wasn't just a message for them, just them, you know, just, so this is our message, so this, we just got to wait here now for the kingdom of God to be established, you know, let's just wait here for Jesus to return. No, they, they knew that this message was meant to be proclaimed far and wide, so that everyone might know that the king is coming, the king has made a way for you to enter his kingdom through faith in him. The prior, um, and so the priority to be witnesses of Christ in the early church, is still the priority of the church today. It's, your, it's my priority. It's, it's your priority. It's our priority as a church. We're to be witnesses of Christ. And it, and it starts here at home in San Francisco. I really am looking forward to, um, <laughs> to uh, Pastor Ray's uh, uh, series when he, does, when he preaches for his doctoral uh, project. He's going to be talking about, really, it's something to the extent of why SF Bible needs, why SF needs SF Bible. You know, is that because the city needs us a Bible, churches like us a Bible, because we are the ones who proclaim the witness of Christ, the testament of Christ to our city. We cannot expect a, a church in Florida to come out here and proclaim the gospel. 
They may come for a week and then disappear. We can't expect a, a church all the way from maybe somewhere in China to come and preach the gospel here. That's not going to be affected. Who is God calling to preach the gospel here in SF? Us. SF Bible. We're called to preach Christ. We're the witnesses who re- preach in Jerusalem here in San Francisco and in the greater Bay Area. But it also means, as well as, the, as we tell others about Jesus Christ, as we make disciples of Jesus Christ, as we build relationships with unbelievers so that the proclamation of Christ might take place, as we're praying for opportunities for the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we're also thinking, though, with a with an eye and a view to beyond the Bay Area. Inevitably, we, we must recognize that the witness of Christ is not meant to be only here. That God calls to be preached here, but we have this, always this sense that it's meant to expand. It's meant to, be for, to go farther than, than, we're, than we are ministering. And so that's why it means for us to, to make it a priority to support missionaries. I love our announcements today. I mean, we have an opportunity to meet with some of our announcements with uh, uh, Pastor Alan Jin and his wife Bev are going to be here. Pastor Alan Jin is going around ministering to churches all around the world by training the pastors and leaders. Everyone, that is a that is one of the ways that we as a church can are, are helping support the the spread of the witness. And then, oh man, did you hear about all the number of countries that were there are uh, places that are looking for short term missions teams? I hope you. Uh, when I heard that, I had to go click on that link right away. I just like, oh, oh wow, that's cool. I, I didn't believe it at first. There's so many opportunities that we have to be involved and become better acquainted with the ministry that's taking place around the world by our missionaries. But also, it gives us perspective when people leave the church. I know as elders, uh, boy, as a pastor, I, I, I'm always kind of a little, feel bittersweet when I get those dear pastor letters. I get them. You get, uh, our elders get them every once in a while. Dear pastor, uh, the Lord's leading us to go to another church. And I'm almost saddened by that. I, I, it's like a family member. It's like my children. You know, you're not my children. Most of you guys are older. The, you know, some, it's like someone, a family member is leaving. And it breaks my heart. But yet we have learned to see that, you know what? Though it breaks our heart to see them leave. We know that God is going to use them to be a witness somewhere else. And God needs them somewhere else. God needs them. And usually we, we expect that they were going to be going to a, another local church where they'll be a part of and where they're going to grow. And they're going to further the gospel witness there in that particular area, whether it's across the bay or it's across the state or it's across the country. Wherever people go, it's, God is sending out his people to be witnesses. But I also think that as a church we should think about it, is if we find ourselves moving to different places, and maybe we're still coming here, because there's no good local church over where they're living in the Bay Area, for instance, then we as a church, if there's no sound local church, we should think about that maybe God has given us an opportunity to start a Bible study over there. Maybe perhaps even down the road to start a church over there in that area. And, um, and hopefully uh, the Lord may give us opportunity to uh, plant a church someday where there is no sound church. Be in prayer, please, for the church, that we would uh, grow in these areas, that our witness would expand, that we'd be bold in our witness, because as the Spirit empowers us, that we'd be faithful to our witness, to proclaim sin, proclaim the Savior.
and to be prayerful about it. Well, these are the three characteristics, three qualities of a disciple-making church. A passion for the kingdom of God. A power from the Holy Spirit. And a priority to witness of Jesus Christ. And uh, I think I have three questions. We can just... These, th- these should mark the church. They should mark Christians, believers. And a uh, question for us to think about this week. How does passion for the kingdom of God manifest in your life? I mean, I hope, I, I'm going to presume you have a passion for the kingdom of God. If you don't, you can repent and confess it and ask the Lord to help you. But assuming you do, how does that manifest in your life? Secondly, what are you depending upon to make disciples of Jesus Christ? I, again, also presume that as believers in this church, we understand we're called to make disciples of Jesus Christ to the glory of God. And as we're striving to do that, whom, who, who are we depending upon? And thirdly, how are you striving to be a witness for Jesus? You know, we have opportunities. If you're, you, wanna, you don't know how to evangelize, we have a winter evangelism course, even. But how are you striving? Assuming you know how to share the gospel, how to be a witness. You don't need to go do cold turkey, you know, evangelism. A lot of times it just begins by the relationships that you have in your life. The people you live with. The people you live next door to. The people you work with. The people you go to school with. Those natural relationships are, uh, are the ones who, who most naturally you're going you're to witness with Christ to. And be prayerful before you just kind of just, you know, uh, skid it all out there. But may our passion continue to be for the furtherance of the kingdom. May our power be drawn from the Holy Spirit. And may our priority be the witnesses, to be witness of Jesus Christ here on earth in this corner of the world until he calls us home or until his kingdom comes. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. Thank you for, these, for this reminder. A reminder for us as a church to make disciples of Jesus. We thank you, Lord, that you have given us a, uh, these instructions and blueprints for us as we build your church. Help us individually and help us corporately, Father, to strive to be marked by these qualities. Lord, let, the, let our driving passion that flows out of our love for you be your, the king, your kingdom where your son, the king, reigns. May the, the proclamation of that kingdom be our message. May, Lord, we know that we cannot do it apart from the empowerment of your spirit. Father, please help us to be filled with your spirit. Men and women of the spirit who are men and women of the word, who proclaim faithfully, graciously, winsomely the truths of the gospel of Jesus so that others might come to know salvation and forgiveness and life abundant, life eternal. Lord, may you be glorified through this church, through all your churches around the world until Christ returns, until you call us home. Father, we pray, help us be faithful to make disciples. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.